As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. In a time where it seems like there is almost a crippling pessimism amongst people and there is a shadow over the imaginations of people, I've been quite fortunate to come across our guest today, Professor Jody Dean, her lectures on YouTube, her interviews, in which she not just allows us to imagine what socialism would look like, but also how it can come to be and what are the steps we can take. So it's an honor and privilege. Welcome to The Malcolm Effect. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you so much. So let's go straight into it. A bit about socialist reconstruction. What I particularly like about this book, as I said in my intro, it allows us to kind of, some people will say, yeah, okay, socialism sounds great on paper, but is it really achievable? Is it utopian almost? So my question to you then is, what was the kind of impetus behind writing this book or co-authoring? Okay, so Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States, is a book that has been produced by the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And I was one of the people um, putting the book together and writing parts of it and helping, Mm -hmm. basically helping birth it. But it's a it was there's a collective of like 30 people who were involved in putting the book forward. And, you know, and writing the chapters. And our basic conviction is that, you know, our future is too important to be left in the hands of the capitalist and the capitalist media. Because just as you said at the beginning, where has that left us? It's left people despondent and depressed and negative. My friend, the late Mark Fisher talked about this as capitalist realism, right? The kind of horrible realization that the only game in town is capitalism, that there's nothing, nothing better. Like that's what they want us to think. But our project for socialist reconstruction is like, no, 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 we can, a better future is possible. And that really, you know, the imagining a better future, building a better future, dreaming of a better future, that it's, that's a weapon in the hand of the working class, right? Mm -hmm. The dreams of a future can be part of our strength. And so that's what we're hoping to inspire with this book, Socialist Reconstruction. And then thinking about our specific context of the North America, do you mind just detailing, we don't have to go into everything because the book does cover quite a lot, but detailing some aspects that you feel socialism will remedy when we think of our societal ills today? Yeah, so our... um... So our book is set in imagine the idea or the thought experiment is to think, okay, what would the United States look like 10 years after a socialist revolution? So let's presuppose that the working class has one power. What do they do? It's kind of like, I don't know, they were, they used to be like, oh, football player, you won the Super Bowl. What are you doing? And they'd always go, I'm going to Disney World. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, working class, you know, you've been in power now, you know, you got power. What are you going to do? And so we um, are one of our primary um, hypotheses or primary assumptions or designs is that we ha- the working class has to take power if we're going to d- address climate change. And so one of the pr- one of the first primary themes of the book is how 
we can address the how we can address global heating. And of course, you know, that means that you have to nationalize all of industry and all of the energy sources and treat energy like a resource rather than as a commodity. So that's one of the major things. And we can talk a lot about the energy plan that's in the book. We also take the view that the working class, because the working class is a multinational working class, that the working class would take major efforts to to end forms of racism, patriarchy, and homophobia, and forms of special oppression. That because the working class is diverse, the working class doesn't want to see the kinds of oppression that capitalist puts on it. So we think that all of education would be redone in that direction. Things like policing would be redone. That so that's so that would be like the, a not not secondary, but another set of assumptions that we would yeah. um, we would bring up. We also think that work would be dramatically transformed, right? Like, I mean, first we're going to get rid of a whole lot of jobs because once you get rid of having private ownership <laughs> of the means of production, you don't need a lot of stockbrokers and folks in advertising. So we'll have a massive transformation of work involving people in necessary tasks, which gives more free time for everyone. So overall, I can say that the book, and, and it gets you right, we'll go, in, we'll go into a lot of detail, but as a, as a big picture, we're con- committed to the, the idea that the working class would address climate change, address forms of special oppression, reconfigure work, and so that we would have universal basic services, meaningful work, and more free time for everyone. Thank you. Annie, did you want to jump in here? Yeah. I guess from my perspective, I did find this sort of really interesting, um, thinking about the relationship between possible futures of socialism and the kind of different ways that cap- capitalism sorts us into different categories, identities, stratas of labor. And I was particularly interested in the discussion of race and patriarchy, especially the discussion of race, given that in terms of modes of disrupting society in the past sort of decade or so, some of the most disruptive movements to capitalism we've seen have come around precisely this question of race and historically over the kind of long history of socialism have come through the question of imperialism. I know there's uh, references in the text to, to imperialism, so I was wondering what you thought about that and in particular how you thought, especially given some of the rhetoric that we see today about who is and isn't invested in maintaining certain hierarchies and structures, what you thought about, or what your thoughts are on how we build a working class movement, which is capable of kind of addressing in a very real sense, some of these structural forms of domination. So that was a very long-winded question. (laughs) Okay, so maybe we'll take it apart and maybe we'll come back to different parts of it to to see where you want to draw out different lines of thought. So the first thing I want to emphasize is that in socialist reconstruction, we take the view that the basically that having the working class in power in the United States would require an end to U.S. imperialism, and it would entail an end to U.S. imperialism. I mean, if we really think about it, who wants to see the proceeds of their labor going to killing other people, right? Who wants to see all of our work and effort being wasted on destruction when it could be 
used for cooperation and building solidarity and creating more peace. So our first model is an end to kind of a, an idea of global competition and an emphasis on global solidarity and global cooperation. In part, that is a program of, repara of reparations. The United States capitalist class is responsible, as we all know, for climate change and for decades and decades, and this is now along with the European countries, of colonialism. And so part of a just, a just response to that, and I mean, as if, it, I mean, it can't ever be fully remedied, but you can start making efforts towards reparations and ending U.S. imperialism and U.S. militarism and U.S. bases and U.S. practices of exploitation and U.S. practices of indebting countries in the, as you claim, as it claims to be helping them. Those can be stopped and those can be ended. And we think that's what a socialist government in the U.S. would do. So kind of more concretely, if you think about this with respect to climate change, we take the view that the climate debt that the U.S. capitalist class owes to the rest of the world means that the U.S. has to give whatever technology another country needs for responding to the climate, not sell it the way all the Green New Deal people say, right? Like, oh, we'll create yes. new markets. It's like, no, come on. Like, like when people are in need, right? If there's a, if there's like a hurricane, do you see, you know, we think of the people who sell like water to people as, as profiteers and opportunists. Like that's the same thing with climate change. Like it should not be that anybody's making a profit from climate change. We have to give away and exactly. on the terms that the countries want. If the country's like, now nah, we don't need it. It's like, okay, we don't force it on you, but we give you what you want on your terms. And so this part to us is a really, it's crucial for climate change and it's crucial for mending and building, rela mending and building relations in response to the decades of, of colonial exploitation and neocolonial exploitation. So that would be part of it. Yes. I mean, we can come back to the race and patriarchy. I have a specific question, but I wanted to kind of go back to when you said specifically about work being transformed. So do you mind perhaps detailing or sketching out what is work under capitalism and then what is work under socialism and how did that transformation will take place? So work under capitalism is distributed in markets. That means that you that someone you have to be willing if you don't have if you don't have your own means of subsistence, which the majority of us in the global north do not, then yeah. you have to sell your labor power to a buyer. Now, mm -hmm. for many people, like the kinds of things that we want to do are not the kinds of things that capitalists want to pay for. I got to say, yep. my daughter graduated <laughs> in you know, 2020, which is horrible. And, you know, unfortunately, because, or fortunately or unfortunately, she was raised as a communist. And so she's like, doesn't work for the man. And nobody wants to <laughs> pay her to sort of make collages. And so it's just like, oh, great. So be careful if you raise your kids as communist. Anyway, because so, the things that, that make her happy, the things of things that are meaningful aren't paid labor. And think about it. Also, we all know people, I mean, and maybe we also are people people who spend a lot of time organizing and in political work, but that's, that's not paid work. It's me and under capitalism, nobody pays us. Right. But it might be the work that for us is most meaningful. So we, um, so our approach to the problem gets rid of the idea of, it does not the idea, it gets rid of, of a market in labor and yes. instead takes up 
planned approach to labor that has people or in, in community. And we think about this basically like everything in terms of creating lots and lots of voluntary organizations, whether it's work organizations, like unions, community organizations, organizations of consumers. I mean, most people would be members of multiple kinds of organizations and you pool mm-hmm. capacities and needs and start to say, okay, it might be the case that we will that many of us will have to do some work we don't like. But that's the way it is in reality, right? You got to get up yeah. in the morning and make your breakfast and someone's got to wash the dishes and someone's got to clean yes. the clothes. So there's going to be work that and that work should not be distributed on the basis of race and gender. And historically yes. it has been. And so no, we recognize that everybody has kinds of work that we all need, that we all do, that we all require, and we distribute that equally, and we can distribute that in a planned way. Then we have other mm-hmm. sorts of tasks and things that are necessary for people, let's say like like the provision of food, right? Agricultural work. There's no reason that many of us can't spend time helping with gardens. And we know from the whole kind of community supported agriculture movement that you can combine a kind of professional approach to farming with lots of volunteer work and more people can be involved in food production. So we think about there's another Mm -hmm. sets of labor that people can be involved with that may not be like their primary labor. And then you might have kinds of labor that like take a long, like many years of planning. Let's say, you know, under socialism, we'll still need astrophysicists, but you're not going to become an astrophysicist in like three years. And so, Mm -hmm. but it also doesn't mean astrophysicists should be paid more Right. It just means that we, when we recognize needs and capacities that, OK, we'll balance these different kinds of work and try to find ways to let people do what they want and minimize the amount of time that any of us has to spend in drudgery. So we think so we yes. have a kind of rough sketch of like these sort of three baskets of work from the kind of stuff that takes the most training, the stuff that takes a middle amount of training and the stuff that everybody has to do all the time. And we think that when work is organized with these sort of three baskets in mind, that folks will likely find ways to remunerate the least desirable tasks the most, and that we'll try to minimize the amount of time any of us have to spend in the tasks that we don't like. And we'll collectivize these, right? There's no reason that dishwashing has to be done as like a lonely thing all by yourself. Like they can be like cool teams. Like the team can be like, oh, we're going to do dishwashing in this neighborhood. Hey, everybody, here comes the blue dishwasher team. And then, you know, and then they get to go to, <laughs> then they get to go to the beach for a week. But, but if you just think about it, if we're not just dictated to by a market in labor, Our work can be more meaningful and we can have more free time. Absolutely. Annie? Yeah, no, as you were saying that, it kind of brought a few things to mind. You know, that there's a kind of been a tension, like a a relationship of tension between socialists and the idea of imagination, just kind of thinking about Marx's critique of utopian socialists. But I think that the role that imagination played, especially in the 20th century and radical socialist movements was really important, right? And so I was, I was wondering what you think, well, you kind of addressed to some extent, like how we got to where we are, but I I was wondering what you think that reviving the socialist imagination does in a more kind of conceptual sense for our capacity to fight for it. Oh, Annie, that's so important. That's such a good question. One of the, the primary problems that we face in the U.S. today is that folks have been inculcated with like, I don't know, close to a century of anti-communism. 
and just constantly all the time it's like communism is bad communism is evil communism is impart is is impossible it's either totalitarian or it's impossible i mean even as sort of neoliberal bourgeois politicians as Barack Obama was criticized as being a communist by the right. And so we have to, we as, as a socialist have to fight mm -hmm. and communist, I mean, socialist communists have to fight against anti-communism. And that is, and so to that extent, um, imagining what socialism can be here is a direct response to the ideological constraints on the political imaginary that we encounter. So it's a it's a real tactic of, of freeing people's minds to say, wait a minute, no, 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 no. We can imagine a better world. We can imagine a socialist world in the United States. Oh, and by the way, major figures in the, and this is what we're saying to the, you know, our imaginary critic, right? And major, major mainstream people in the United States have thought about socialism, been socialist, been friendly to socialism, like Albert Einstein and Helen Keller and Martin Luther King Jr., right? It's not like socialism is some kind of scary bugbear, right? And so what we have to do is remind people, is teach people the histories, teach people that the, the importance of communist in the struggle against um, lynching and white supremacy in the United States, like that's an important part of American history that has been really pushed aside. And then this helps create a space for for political possibility. So I think that really it's like like we made a lot of sense for Marx and Engels to criticize utopian socialism. I mean, they were criticizing something that was exerting a negative or or limiting effect on working class struggle. But for us, the effect is this limiting effect is coming from anti-communism. And that's one of the things that that thinking in terms of how is socialism possible here and why is it necessary, that's what it can do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I, I was really struck while you were speaking. So my project is kind of tracing how different shifts, not just in the kind of ideological content of like teaching or like political like signaling impacts how people think but also these underlying material processes and I kind of think about how there isn't oftentimes the space for imagination today as well so we for example don't get to work alongside our colleagues especially in the context of the pandemic we're a lot more precarious so we're okay. thinking a lot more about tomorrow and we're also increasingly isolated by these kind of like structures of identity so I think I guess kind of uh, bringing us back again to, to the earlier question, I guess, what would it look like to imagine together? But no, in speaking about anti-communism and I've, you know, my short time in the States, I've recently moved to the States about two months ago from the UK and prior to that in Cairo. But I can honestly, I thought the UK was bad. But honestly, the anti-communism you get in, the, it's almost an identity. And I like the way you said it's an unofficial religion. And I think that's the best way of pointing it out because it's, I mean, even insofar as video games, one of the missions on Call of Duty uh, you have is to kill Fidel Castro as a mission, literally. So from, you can, and you know, that's a game played by so many young, young people. So I literally noticed that, you know, it is literally an identity. And again, I know the work of, you know, one of your co-editors, Rhys Berdenstelli, on the convergence between anti-communism and anti-blackness is, is an important intervention, important work as well. But in moving 
forward, you, I believe, are a part of the PSL. So I want to ask just a personal question. Like, what do you find important about being a part of a party as someone on the left? And why specifically the PSL, the place for you? Thanks for that question. I also want to flag Sharice Burden-Stelly like you just did, because when yeah. when we've been talking about our new collection, Organized Fight When Black Communist Women's Political Writing, Sharice always ends every one of our interviews with join an organization. And she's right. Yes. right. I, I actually don't think one can be a serious socialist or communist or even on the left alone. Right. You have to be in an organization because being an organization, it's how you make turn your own ideas and efforts into something bigger. You make it part of something else. Right. You add to what others are doing. So the first thing I think that that any kind of serious leftist has to be an organization like full stop. That's the way you make difference Mm -hmm. in the world. I joined PSL because the comrades in the party were the most serious and disciplined and committed people um, that I'd ever met. I was really, really wow. impressed with their, you know, their their commitment to study and their commitment to um, the working class and their commitment to anti-imperialism and anti-racism and, and ending bigotry in all its forms. So it was the the seriousness of the comrades, you know, the 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 platform is important, yes, of course, right? But there are, you know, there's a lot of ways to think about marxism leninism that are compelling. And so it was the combination yes. of a a platform but also the real commitments the comrades. And I'll also say now this is you know sort of maybe less uh less serious, but one of the first <laughs> first times I, because I, I live in Geneva, New York, and Geneva's yeah. got 12,000 people. So this is not, you know, a really happening place. Um, and so one of the first times I was down at protests in Philadelphia and saw the PSL comrades at en masse, I'm just like, wow, like the party street level game is so fantastic, right? It's so great. <laughs> there were so many comrades um, with, you know, with, in their, you know, red t-shirts and with the banners and with the flags and with the megaphones and making sure that they were in every single march and demo and just bringing it consistently every time. This was really, really inspiring. Wow. And the thought that this, in some left circles, it seems like everybody's old and everybody's white. And the PSL was was young and diverse. And it's like, okay, this is a party of the diverse multinational working class that, that um, I want to be part of and that I can actually imagine making a huge difference in this country. Oh, if you don't yep. mind, you had left off, Annie, about something with material processes, which was made it sort of hilarious that the material processes gave out <laughs> <of exactly. laughs> that moment. But I'm not sure if that prompt helps at all if you wanted to go back. But um, I just wanted to bring that up. Uh, yeah, no, I was the question I was going to ask was about how. So my project kind of looks at how the kind of way that we think is shaped by, yes, political discourse, ideology as like kind of embedded in our minds through education, signaling in the media, but also these underlying material processes and shifts. So one of the things I track is like shifts in the types of labor that people perform and how they make possible different ways of thinking. And uh, I've kind of come to the conclusion that as much as we need imagination today, and I think that the the book captures this quite beautifully, that what we 
need to imagine is really radically different from what was imagined in the 20th century, right? Because we're faced with a different kind of technological age. So I was wondering what your thoughts were and what it would look like to imagine in the 21st century specifically. Yeah, I'm thinking that's a really thoughtful question. So actually, I want to go back to the 19th century and the you know early years of Marxism and then the early 20th century, maybe up to mid 20th century. Because for um, the kind of, for Marx and Engels and then for the um, Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution, the goal was something we might now just call development or the development of the productive forces, the expansion, intensification of the um, productive forces. The goal was associated with building industry. And for, you know, the, the book Socialist Reconstruction is imagining a future for the United States. And we don't need to continue to develop industry in the same way. That's not where, that's that's not like the United States is an industrialized country. So our project is not the one of, you know, let's have more mines and let's have more steel factories, right? Instead, we've gotten to a different kind of technological age with you know computers and and internet and all of that kinds of things which has changed in many ways the nature of work we also have the the it's also the case that industry has changed agriculture the industrialized approaches to kind of corporate agribusiness and heavy uses of fertilizers and these sort of awful kind of computerized automatic agricultural things that are automatic feeding things for animals that enable really um, kind of horrible forms of factory farming. So our approach to industry has to learn from, particularly in agriculture, has to learn from indigenous people, has to learn from peasant cultures, has to learn from landed workers from all over the world, and learn methods of farming that Marx himself recognized were that we have to get rid of methods of farming that Marx himself recognized as damaging to the soil as well as to the workers. So I think that part of our project is not like a full-fledged we are going towards industrial progress, but no, it's like we have to heal the planet from things that industry has done while also using some of the advantages that forms of capitalist concentration have enabled. So it's not like the it's not like okay we destroy all of the all of industry. It's more like we take a planned approach to what kinds of things do people want and need? What are the things that are important and good for people's lives rather than what are the kinds of things that are important and good for capitalists to make their profits. So I think that if we're, when we get away from this kind of industrialist, developmentalist mindset, we can approach the, the understanding of the economy differently, thinking more in terms of meeting the needs of people and the planet. I'm not sure, Annie, if that gets at what you were asking about or not. No, it absolutely does. Thank you so much. Mama, do you want to follow up? Yeah. So in another question I wanted to ask was on 
the formation of government in a socialist construction. So I wanted to ask, how can your proposed system of governance address the needs of oppressed minority groups and colonized peoples domestically and abroad? I mean, you touched a little bit about on when you spoke about imperialism, but I'd like you to kind of go further into it if possible? Yeah, sure. So we have a chapter in the book called The Form and Function of Socialist Government. And the basic are the form and function of a new democracy. And let me say a little bit about the idea behind it. So first, we we recognize that, okay, you know, after the working class has come to power in the United States, right, in this kind of thought experiment or proof of concept that we're providing, that we're not going to use the, it's not like we're just like reforming the U.S. Constitution, right? There's going to be a brand <laughs> new thing, right? We get Because it's like when we get bogged down in these, like, we got to reform this, we got to reform that. It's like, that's just sort of, that like is taking the assumptions of the bourgeois system rather than having a new sort of system being, you know, anchored in the working class. So we assume that there will be a um, new constitutional convention, but we think that we can still, and so the new constitutional convention, of course, we can't predict, like we don't have a crystal ball. We don't predict exactly what's going to happen. But we think that if you that if you start kind of recognizing the, the form a socialist government would have to take and the kind of functions a government would have to take, that we can say a little bit about what it might look like. Right? So again, we're not dictating, we we're not dictating any of this. We're actually trying to open a conversation, you know, really with all of society, right? Not just with the, you know, the typical left, but with everybody who thinks that, that we can have a better world and that we can have a future through which the people and the planet can flourish and not just sort of struggle for survival as every, as you know everything is on fire or flooded or droughts so if we think there's a better world so let's have this thought experiment so one of, there are a few assumptions that we bring in one is that we're going to have to stop thinking politically in terms of the kinds of states that we have now right like like domestically let's not like like texas and Utah and New York and Maryland, these shouldn't be sort of separate political units. Instead, we can think in terms of larger regional areas. So, so that's part of getting rid of the federalist system. We think that's crucial in part because one of the problems today is the way that rural areas exert so much more political power than urban areas. And that's a legacy of U.S. slavery and genocide. Let's just, we should just be frank about that, right? There are rural voices and these rural areas tend to be much wider. Our urban areas in the country tend to be much, much more diverse. And yet the way that their district and the way that the Senate works and the way that laws are passed totally privileges these small areas that have you know, much sort of less dense population. So we want we think that we have to sort of change that in order to make sure that a real principle of one person, one vote can happen, right? So that it won't be the case that, you know, like say in a place like New York, like that, that the the decisions of all sorts of small counties 
override um, what goes on in in the city or override the voices in the city. So that's um, that's part of it. We also have an idea for an assembly of oppressed nations as as one of the two houses of government. So we think, of course, you're not going to have something like the Senate. My God, all the Senate is is a protection elitism in the in the country. But if we had sort of like maybe one house that um, is a vastly expanded kind of house of representatives, but then another house that's anchored in you know, the representatives from oppressed nations domestically. And, you know, by that we have in mind primarily, um, but not exclusively, um, you know, um, Black people and Indigenous people. What if they had veto power over anything that was passed? I mean, that would be quite amazing. What if they had to approve? Everything Mm -hmm. has to go through that. I mean, lots and lots of laws that are in the U.S. would not hold muster. So that for us is one of the important ways addressing domestically some of the problems of slavery and genocide, that way that they persist in our political system today. Thank you. Another question is, you have a chapter in your book that addresses climate change. And whilst we know climate change will not be addressed by capitalism, how can we maintain and how can we ensure that workers maintain dignity and livelihood through what would be such a significant change in production? Oh, oh my God. I think that's such an important question. I've got to say, that's one of the things that always worries me when I'm just mm-hmm. like, when we're here in sort of not 10 years into our communist future, but in everyday life, like it's yes. like so many kind of, I don't know, let's say, just say progressives talk about just say keeping it in the ground. And I, th- you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I lived in Texas and Louisiana and I'm like, what about all of the people in these industries? Like what happens to them? It's the same. It's like when the yes. when steel and coal went down or, you know, became sort of offshore and all of that, what ha- those people, essentially those people became right-wing voters for generations. And so we've got to have any, any, just approach to climate change has to take very seriously the lives and the people of who have been working, you know, the workers who've been under capitalism, who've had to make their living selling their labor power to these fossil fuel corporations. So the way that we approach this is, you know, as any good socialist, planning, lots of planning. Yes. And so we have a, a, a plan that we called Cap and Convert. And it's a 10-year plan that um, every year diminishes the amount of fossil fuel produced or imported in the United States and increases the amount of renewables in the energy mix. And so the thought is that within 10 years, you can totally transform energy production in this country. Why 10 years? Because part of the plan has to involve learning from and teaching and positioning the workers currently in the industry in in new jobs, in new positions. So we can learn from what their experiences are. I mean, workers will often be the ones who can tell you, here's what's wrong here. Here's how we can do this better. Here's how we can do this safely. Here's how we can convert this factory into something that will be um, useful for sustainable energy. So if you have a planned approach to that, one that learns from the workers, one that puts workers in the kind of leading sort of organizations that are part of the transition, then you're going to get one, you're going to get a lot more buy-in. Like, let's just seriously, you've got to get buy-in on this. And you're also going to get the benefit of their knowledge and experience. 
Exactly. And I would like to say, I mean, just a thank you because you've not only showed us that socialism is possible, but rather it's necessary. So I guess I would like, I like to leave some with my listeners with some perhaps concrete steps. We have a plan, we have a vision, we have a, a new imagination of what the United St- Socialist States of America, or maybe not the America, <laughs> will look like. But what can we do? How can we get there? How are we going to bring this into fruition? You have to join a party. And I would yes. su- and I would suggest PSL. But if you're, you know, for people who need a kind of gateway drug to socialism, there's DSA. And there are other organizations that are also doing an important, important work. And so it doesn't have to be just this one organization, but you have to yes. be in an organization. I mean, also, you know, organization is also the way that we learn to work together with other people. And under socialism, we're not going to, the market's not going to be dictating how we act to each other. We act, we will plan and organize our activities together. So we have to learn how to do that well. And that's one of the things you learn from being in an organization. It's not, you know, again, it's not just about you, right? Your own idea, your own talent and how everybody recognizes you. It's like, how do you listen? How do you cooperate? How do you make collective decisions? So the the a number one thing people actually the a number one thing people can do to address um res, to address cl- climate change is join a socialist mm-hmm. join a socialist party. That's the best thing you can do for the climate. Don't worry about your light bulbs. Join a socialist party. Exactly, exactly. And I guess this is a a bit said in jest, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Will there still be an academic paywall in socialism? <laughs> <laughs> no, no paywalls. It's going to be honestly. Everything will be the 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 people's media. The the, the no you know no private property around collective ideas. Right? We'll get rid of patents, of course. Of course, of course. Right? That's a collective <laughs> knowledge. But paywall assumes that ideas can be privatized. But the ideas become mm-hmm. stronger the more they're shared. Exactly. Exactly. And on that lovely note, thank you so much for joining me once again. I will leave Professor Jody Dean's social media on Twitter, her Twitter handle or in the description of the episode. Please like, comment, subscribe on The Malcolm Effect. Until next time, peace out.